Scripture lesson for this morning is from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. And I'm going to give you a little bit of a warning beforehand. This is not the happiest of readings. So if you feel a little sad afterwards, I warned you. The words of the teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the teacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What do people gain from all the toil at which the sun, at which they toil under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hurries to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Round and round goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, they continue to flow. All things are wearisome, more than one can express. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there a a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been in the ages before us. The people of long ago are not remembered, nor, nor will there be any remembrance of people yet to come by those who come after them. I, the teacher, when king over Israel in Jerusalem, applied my mind to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under, the, under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to human beings to be busy with. I saw all the deeds that are done under the sun and see all is vanity and a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be, uh, cannot be counted. I said to myself, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all of those who were over Jerusalem before me. And my mind has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my mind to no wisdom and to no madness and folly. I perceive that this is also but a chasing after wind, for is, in much wisdom is much vexation." And those who increase knowledge increase sorrow. You're probably wishing I was back out of town. (laughs) The word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. At the end of the movie, Forrest Gump, Forrest and Forrest Jr. sit on a, a park bench and waiting for the school bus to arrive to send Jr. off on his first day of school. And while they're waiting, each of them say, I love you to the other. And Then the school bus arrives and Junior gets on the bus and it looks a lot like the beginning of the movie where Forrest Junior introduces himself to the bus driver and he begins his journey through life. After the bus leaves, Forrest looks up and he sees a feather floating around on a breeze and he says, I don't know if all of us have a destiny or not or if we're just feathers floating around accidental-like, like a feather on a breeze. Um, And that's not the first time we've met this question in the movie Forrest Gump. Forrest's own mother says, I think that each one of us makes our own destiny. Whereas Lieutenant Dan says, each one of us has a destiny, and he believes his destiny is to die on a battlefield somewhere. But what better character to wonder and ponder about the meaning of life than Forrest Gump? Somebody who experiences all of these things at sort of a a comedic level. Uh, he He is both a Vietnam War veteran and a ping pong diplomat. He is an all-American football player at Alabama present during desegregation. He teaches Elvis Presley his famous hip wiggle. Uh, He meets Presidents Kennedy, Johnson, and Nixon. 
He's at the Watergate Hotel and he looks across the, the way and he sees some lights and he calls security. <laughs> and of course, there's that familiar refrain of run, Forrest, run throughout the movie. Are we, uh, is there a higher destiny? Or do we have a purpose? Is there a meaning to life? Or are we just feathers floating around, accidental-like, on a breeze? That's the question that's at the heart of the book of Ecclesiastes, where we, be, we find ourselves here this morning. We are uh, beginning a sermon series through this little book of Ecclesiastes that'll take us through most of the rest of the summer, five weeks. Now, I don't know if that's a depressing thought to you that there's just about five or six weeks left of the summertime, but sorry to be the bearer of bad news. That's just the reality of things. We're going to go through the book of Ecclesiastes and Ecclesiastes is uh, part of what's known in the Bible as wisdom literature. And wisdom literature really stands out in the Bible. Uh, It's sort of unique in the Bible. Uh, Ecclesiastes, along with Proverbs and Job, are what's known as wisdom literature. Um, And it's different because it's sort of universal in its nature. It doesn't deal with one specific group of people the way that so much of the Bible does. It doesn't deal with the church or the people of Israel. You find wisdom literature all across the ancient Near East. And it really lacks a lot of those things we find in the Bible, those sort of supernatural miracles, those great powerful deeds of God. What wisdom literature is, is it's really theology or reflections and thinking about God that is done from sort of the ground level. That it looks around and it observes the world in which we inhabit and asks those really big and important questions in life. But of course, the big questions that we ask are incredibly complex, and it's hard to find answers to those questions So maybe the frustrating thing to many of us is that wisdom literature is found with all sorts of contradictions, not just from one book to the next, but also within even the same book, even from verse to verse. So the one that the scholar Peter Enns likes to point out is in the book of Proverbs, chapter 26, where in one verse it says, "'Do not answer the fools according to their folly, lest you become foolish in their own eyes.'" And then the very next verse says, answer fools according to their folly so that you may be wise in their eyes. So which is it? Should we answer the fools according to their folly or should we not? Someone posts something that I think is ignorant on social media, should I comment on it? Or should I just keep on scrolling through my Facebook newsfeed? That's the beautiful thing I think about wisdom literature is that it understands that there is complexity that we are in this constant state of reflection on the world around us, constantly seeking to answer these big questions of life. And the book of Ecclesiastes is concerned with this question of the meaning of life. It's that question that we find at the end of Forrest Gump. Are we, do we have a destiny? Is there a purpose and a meaning to life? Or are we just feathers floating around accidental-like on a breeze? So Ecclesiastes is written down by a teacher named Kohelet. Can we say that? Kohelet. Good. You guys are getting your Hebrew down. Kohelet. And so Kohelet is reflecting on this question, the meaning of life. A nice small question for us to reflect on over the next five weeks, right? The, The meaning of life. And Kohelet is rather negative. He's kind of brooding. He's seen some things, it seems like, in that verse, in that chapter that we read here this morning. He says, vanity, vanity, everything is vanity. Now, that word vanity is not a great translation of the Hebrew word that's used here. This happens a lot in English. You have not great translations of Hebrew words. The word is actually hebel. We say that one, 
Hebel. You guys almost got it. That's the, I promise that's the end of your Hebrew lesson for today. Hebel. And what Hebel actually means is like wind or vapor or pointless or absurd. So what Kohelet is saying is that the world around us is absurd. That he sees baked into the very fabric of the universe contradictions. That we expect the world and the universe to operate according to certain principles, to work in a certain way, and yet it doesn't seem to operate that way. We expect that if we work and we toil really hard, we will gain something from our labor, he says. That we expect that we will get ahead in life, but of course we know that's not how things work. People end up in careers that are not always good fits for them. That's why we have the term second career person. They end up in, in jobs that may be life-draining, not life-giving. And what, what's more, he says, is that the sun rises and sets. Despite all of our toil, all of our work, the sun rises and sets just as it always does. The wind blows one direction only to return back the next day. And the streams and rivers flow into the sea and the ocean, but the ocean is never full. He says, there is nothing new under the sun. We live our lives on this sort of cosmic hamster wheel. It's like this constant movie Groundhog Day. It's like that myth of Sisyphus rolling the, the, hill, the, the rock up the hill only to have it roll back down, and he does this on into eternity. Heather and I know a little bit of something about Sisyphusian tasks when it comes to cleaning up our children's toys. Picking them up, putting them in the box only to turn around and that Thing you just put away is back out again. Don't even get me started on the box of Legos down in the basement. <laughs> What's more, Kohelet says, is that it's just the same old thing over and over again. We live, we die, and then we are quickly forgotten. Uh, we, are, we are not remembered in someone's memory or otherwise. What about searching for wisdom, Kohelet says? He's a great teacher of wisdom. Can we find meaning to the universe? What an unhappy task God has given us, Kohelet says, to try and search for meaning in the universe because we search and we search and we can't find anything. We can never really know if there's meaning to the universe. You all depressed yet? I know that this is a lot to take in, but let's all take a big collective breath. That's Hebel, by the way wind, vapor. It's all going to be okay, I promise you that. Um, Kohelet is doing what all teachers of wisdom do, sitting back and observing the world around him. And to me, Kohelet is not all that depressing. Kohelet is actually surprisingly honest to me and, and refreshingly honest. He's looking at the world and he's saying the, the typical answers that we give don't seem to be working anymore. And he's bringing that to the forefront. That Kohelet is dealing with what the theologian and existentialist philosopher Paul Tillich called the anxiety of emptiness and meaninglessness. And this is when we have something in our lives that used to be meaningful to us, but then it, we meet it with revulsion or even indifference. It might be that we were excited about something, passionate about something, and then we lose interest in it. It might be that we had a belief that we once held, and then we learn that that belief no longer holds water. And so what Tillich says is we go searching for meaning, something to fill that void, and yet nothing seems to fill it. That Tillich saw this as the greatest crisis of his own time, 
this searching for meaning. And, and Tillich knew something about that in his own personal life. He was a, a chaplain during World War I. He um, experienced what we now know as PTSD as a result of all that. He was uh, a teacher in a German university during World War II. He was resistant to the Nazis, was exiled, made his way to the United States. He, he knew something about this searching for meaning. He saw it as the greatest crisis of his own time. And now, several decades after his death, I think that this is still a crisis that we're facing. This searching for what is meaningful in our world. And I see this by observing the world around me. I see this especially among people in my generation and the generation younger than me, Generation Z. The sort of sense, as you scroll through social media, the sort of general sense of despair this longing for, looking for what can keep them grounded in life, what is, is meaningful in their lives. The Harvard Institute for Human Flourishing did a study that was published last year where they measured Americans' sense of well-being, their satisfaction with a sense of well-being. And what they found 20 years ago was that the younger generation, so those 18 to 25 and those in the older age bracket, had the, the highest levels of sense of well-being. When they measure well-being, they mean physical, mental health, but also social relationships. They mean access to material things, financial things, but also this general sense of meaningfulness. So they found 20 years ago, the younger and the older generations had this sense of meaning as compared to those in the middle stages of life who are searching for jobs, raising children, experiencing all the stresses that life can throw our way. But now, 20 years later, what they found is that the younger generation, those 18 to 25, have the lowest sense of well-being of any age bracket. And it's not hard for us to imagine why this has happened. A COVID pandemic that created anxiety about health, both physical and mental. There's a, a lack of opportunity. The job market doesn't look like it did 20, 30, 40 years ago. A bunch of millennials and Gen Z, they want to purchase their own homes, but they're often priced out of that. Add on to that a bunch of educational debt, and you get this crisis of well-being. And I think that there's a lot that needs to be said about this. There's a lot that needs to be said about a generation or two generations of people looking for homes or straddled with large amounts of debt. But for our purposes here this morning, the important question is that it's created this crisis of emptiness and meaninglessness. What do you, where do you find a sense of meaning for a generation of people who no longer have access to what we have defined as meaningful for generations generations. But of course, it's not just millennials and Gen Z who are searching for meaning. Everyone is searching for meaning. Think about the person who invests their entire self, their entire sense of identity into their job, who goes and goes and who never stops. The great uh, psychiatrist and philosopher uh, Viktor Frankl said, he had a phrase for this, for the person who goes and goes and then stops. He called it the Sunday neuroses. That feeling of emptiness, that void that's there when all of the busyness stops. Or we look for a sense of meaning as we move into retirement, as our careers, our working life ends. We go searching for what's meaningful to us. I think a lot about those professional athletes who retire only to quickly return back to playing the sports. Think Tom Brady and Michael Jordan. What do you do when this thing that you've defined your life by is no longer there? Apparently, if you're Michael Jordan, you play 36 holes of golf 300 days a year. I know some of you might enjoy that. But what's meaningful for us as we move from our 
working life into uh, retirement. Or many of us have defined ourselves by our relationships, whether they be friendships or romantic ones or whatever it might be, but of course people let us down. What happens when those relationships no longer hold meaning? Or many of us have defined ourselves as parents, as mom and dad. What happens when the nest is empty? Where do we derive our sense of meaning then? I think a lot about the people I grew up with, the conservative evangelicals, who we were, we were told to believe a certain way, that our worldview was the correct one. But then a lot of us have gone through and figured out that it doesn't really, we don't hold those beliefs anymore. We're going through what's called deconstruction. That's the phrase that it's used. People looking at their beliefs and figuring out what's actually true. So what, so what holds, wait, what holds a sense of meaning when the way that you've defined your life no longer rings true. That we all have things that we derive our sense of meaning from. Tillich called this our ultimate concern. We all place a sense of meaning into something, and our ultimate concern drives our lives. And our ultimate concern can be both good and productive and healthy for us, but our ultimate concern can also be negative and unhealthy and destructive for us. I think in a lot of ways, all of our ultimate concerns are probably some mixture of both. How are we defining our lives? What is meaningful to us? This is why I think Kohelet is so helpful. It's because he is looking at the landscape, the garden of meaningful things, and asking, do any of these things actually hold meaning? He's helping to sort of till up the ground of where we plant our sense of meaning into. So, so Tillich seems to be rather negative, but he's not a nihilist. He doesn't think the universe is void and empty of meaning. He's just calling to question, what are those things that we normally put our sense of meaning into? Are they hebel? Are they vapor? Are they wind? Are they passing? Or are they things that have a little more sturdiness to them? Are they things that, that last a little bit more? You know, watching the movie Forrest Gump, it's, it's fun to watch all the things that Forrest gets into. He has all of these fun activities that go on, but, but none of them were actually his ultimate concern, were they? He was a Vietnam War veteran, a ping pong diplomat, all of these things, but none of them, they just sort of come in and out of Forrest's life, and they never really seem to have a huge impact on him. They were never his ultimate concern. His ultimate concern was always Jenny, wasn't it? Everywhere he goes, whether in the fields of Vietnam or uh, on the football field at Alabama, he's always wondering and thinking about what Jenny's doing. That's the entire movie, isn't it? Him sitting on a, a bus bench, waiting for the bus to show up, waiting to go see Jenny, recounting his life. Uh, in fact, the only times we ever really see Forrest show any sort of emotion, he's pretty even keel throughout the movie, the only time we ever actually see him show any emotion is when it concerns Jenny. When, it, when she's being hurt, or even at the end of the movie when she passes away, crying at her graveside. That was always his ultimate concern. Always the thing that grounded him and kept him throughout life, that he constantly showed love to Jenny, even when there was no guarantee that it would work out. Kept on showing that love. That was always his ultimate concern. Now, I don't know the meaning of life, I'm not going to even wager a guess. I'm going to follow the wisdom of that great teacher, Kohelet. If he doesn't know, I don't know. And if I tried to give you a, a guess as to what the meaning of life is, that would be rather arrogant, I think, and I would have a lot more money than I do. 
But I do sit with people a lot towards the end of their lives, or I sit with the loved ones of a recently deceased uh, person, and I hear them talk a lot about the things that are meaningful to them. And I don't hear a whole lot about how much money they made or how many hours they worked. I hear a lot about relationships, friendships, children, grandchildren. I hear a lot about the love that was shown and the love that was received. I hear a lot about uh, communities of faith like this one. I hear a lot about how that person made the world a better place. That in a world that is fleeting and seemingly absurd and full of contradictions, I think Kohelet is right. These are the things that seem to hold us, to, to ground us as we make our way through life. That Kohelet is right. The world is absurd. But there are things that are meaningful to each and every one of us. What does it mean to live in such a world? Well, that's a question for next week. <laughs> <laughs>